welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 38, where we're going back, back to, the, to past the past to read some comic books from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and you can listen to and subscribe and rate us at iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, and by the howl of Wolfkin. Mm. How was that? That was great. Did you buy that one? I, I, I thought there was someone behind. I thought there was a wolf behind. You, like, you let a wolf into your house there? <laughs> oh, anyway, if that, I don't think that probably told anyone what we're doing today. But, but the we're comic, doing Cap Wolf, right? The, I, <laughs> soon enough. Uh, <laughs> the comic we're doing today is Elf Quest number one. This is a request by Chris Sheehan, in a way. <laughs> God, I heard uh, that guy. Yeah, he's uh this is this is uh Chris is gonna tell you all about his interactions with the comic, but we'll just tell you right now it was published by Warp Graphics with a 1979 cover date. Mike's Amazing World at DCindexes.com has a release date of February 1, 1979, written by Wendy and Richard Peeney, art by Wendy Peeney, and the cover price is one dollar. Mm-hmm. And this is a very, very important, uh, not, not necessarily this issue, but this series is very important to me. I can honestly say if, it, if not for this book, I wouldn't be doing this show right now. Wow. Uh, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have half my house dedicated to <laughs> stacks of, <laughs> of rotting paper. You know? Oh, man. Uh, now, you, now your wife knows what to blame. <laughs> yes, yes. And thank or blame the, the peonies. Um, and I'd actually come around to it in a sort of roundabout way. Uh, I had moved, my family had moved to Long Island uh, when I was in about 1988. And um, a buddy of mine, like the first the first dude I met, was really into uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. The, uh, you know, the tabletop stuff, which uh, I always thought looked really cool, but I, I have problems sitting still. Uh, you and I have talked off the air. I, I can't sit still for anything. Yeah. So uh, I, I, the thought of sitting and 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 you know playing Dungeons and Dragons until you know until the, until the parents said it's you know time to go to right. bed or whatever. Hours, I, hours. Yeah, yeah. days, weeks. Um, that just wasn't my thing. Uh, but I still wanted to take part. So uh, what I did is I would draw the characters. So like the the guys would roll for them, and I would draw them to their specifications, basically. Huh. And. Uh, like if they wanted a certain kind of helmet or a certain kind of uh, facial hair or an eye patch or all that silly stuff, and uh, we had we would uh, we had like the one character sheet that we would have his father bring to work with him so he can make a few photocopies of it every. Oh, every there week. you go. Yeah, and you and you could dress them up, right? You could, <laughs> yep. Basically, it's like those old uh, you know uh, cutout like paper, paper dolls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would I would draw them and they would I don't and the thing of it is I don't think they ever got used I don't think I don't even think my friend ever played the game I think he just liked the culture of it and right. the idea I you know it's like you're in love with the idea of it not really it yeah. Um, and uh, one day I'd gone to his house and he had these awesome looking characters that he had drawn. And I did not know how he did it because, uh, you know, we were like eight and nine years old. So I was like, how did you do this? And he showed me uh, the ElfQuest Gatherum, volume two. He opened it to pages 80 and 81, which his copy was like stuck open to that mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, two pages. And it was uh, these, I actually have the book here right next to me here. I don't remember what they refer to them as, but it's like these outlines of characters. It is, yeah, mannequin drawings is what they call them. And like they're these thick black outlines of characters with like where the eyes would go. 
And uh, but they're like they're not adorning anything. It's just the body shape. Mm. So he traced these out and he would make the characters. So then I started doing that. And one of the times I uh, I had brought the book home with me and I actually decided that I should maybe try reading it and uh, totally fell in love with the concept. Uh, there's really no story in the gatherums. It's more of a it's like a collection of uh like stuff from the comics journals in there, uh, just a whole bunch of ephemera huh. <laughs> and sketches and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, I, I and it's funny because I'm, I'm thinking back on this and it feels like this went on for like years, but I'm sure it was like days. Yeah. <laughs> days when you're that old, days are years. They might as well be years. But yeah. I mean, this is, this is a, you know, this is a, you've already got a full fan scene around ElfQuest that you were just yeah. cottoning into like uh, at this stage and it just wrapped you up. You know, I think that's interesting. It wasn't really, you know, was this the first comics you ever read, really? No, no, you know, just like anybody in of our of our uh, vintage, uh, yeah. comics were always around. Uh, you know, you'd always, is it what, they're like 40, 50 cents, you know, your parents would pick them up for you or whatever, so. Go on vacation or even, even sure. at the barber shop, I remember, they used to be comics. Yeah, they'd be sitting there in the, in the pediatrician's office. Right, and, right, right. But uh, yeah, the, uh, comics were always around, but I never, uh, and, and I had a bunch, but I, I never considered myself a collector. Um, until this, until I came into ElfQuest. So and you I, found uh, a story that you felt worth was worth collecting, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and because uh, I had gone back and I'm like, hey, have you read any of this? And he went and he showed me the first three uh, trade paperbacks. And I'd never seen a trade paperback before. I just wow. saw comics. And this taught me that a, trade paperbacks existed, and B, trade paperbacks are expensive. Mm -hmm. oh, <laughs> so, yeah. This was a $20 book. It's like, that's a lot of money for a book. Um, but, uh, you know, we uh, they, were the only, they were the only comics in the library outside of, like, Garfield and mm -hmm. maybe, like, Sons of Origins of Marvel Comics. Right, right. And so it was like, it was either that or nothing. So uh, so I started reading those and, and really fell for them. And, uh and since uh, these were a little bit older, because it was 1988, the story, the original quest had ended, I want to say like 82, 83-ish. Mm. And uh, these were not available on newsstands. So it made it so I had to uh, go to a comic book store for the first time ever. Wow. I had never been to a comic book store before. And uh, and you know, now, now it's like a home away from home. <laughs> and... Uh, Further, it, it brought me to another home away from home, and that's the back issue bin. I had no idea what a back issue bin was. Yeah, I think was. you're more home there, to be honest with you, at that's, than yeah, you that's... are at the comic book store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because, like, I went in and I asked for it, and the guy pointed over to these bins, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? So, it's, so you know, I dug through a bin for the first time to pick up an ElfQuest comic, and I, I picked up, I think it was issue 11 of the Marvel Epic run. Uh, that we'll get into a little bit later on, but uh, I stuck with it, and before I knew it, you know, ElfQuest was the perfect gateway drug, uh, because you know when I turned, you know, eleven and twelve is when, you know, McFarlane hit and Liefeld hit and wow. Lee hit and you know X Men Volume Two and X Force and Amazing Spider Man and all that Comics stuff. Comics became popular on a, on a whole, yeah. you know, and you were already had your ElfQuest interest, yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it, it's you know, back then it wasn't like a four dollar investment. It was here. This is a dollar. Do you want to look at it? Right. So it's, so you know, you pick up an issue of X Men. And you're like, oh man, okay, <laughs> and then you just go from there. And uh, that's that's how I got into comics. Was wow. was 
roundabout way through ElfQuest. I think that, and, uh, that's 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 pretty great. I think that's that speaks a lot to your understanding, your broader understanding of comics, not being mm-hmm. just you know one publisher or just superheroes. You know, I think you saw the uh, broader context, the the abilities of comics to tell different kinds of stories mm-hmm. very and early I, on. And I do apologize if that was a little self indulgent. It's, it's, oh, no, uh, no, is, these uh, are the kind of stories that I that I enjoy listening to when I'm listening to a podcast. I love hearing the personal anecdotes that surround your favorite and least favorite and you know seminal works. Absolutely, that you, uh, everyone's got their own you know weird story of how they got Secret into origin, it. Yeah. If they stayed with it, you know what I mean. Then there's sure. always something. What made you? stick with it to you know for decades into adulthood and uh, i always love to hear it i'm sure that a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear it and i do know that there is even more to the chris comics history but we're not going to not today not going (laughs) to give it all up here folks you know you're going to have to keep listening if you want to know chris's uh, further adventures in comic books but right now we are going to give our author bios and in this case we have a married couple wendy and richard peeney uh, Wendy Peeney was born Wendy Fletcher on June 4th, 1951 in San Francisco, California. She grew up in Gilroy, California, and is mostly a self-taught artist, which is very impressive because Absolutely. this is really uh, well-polished, well-drawn stuff. Uh, even this mm-hmm. first issue, I can only assume further down the series, it only gets better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would show her stuff at various science fiction conventions in the mid to late 1960s. These must have been some of the very first ones. Yeah, I'm guessing. Richard Peeney, he was born July 19th, 1950 in New Haven, Connecticut, and after high school was accepted to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, otherwise known as MIT, to work toward a degree in astrophysics. While in college, Richard was reading a particular issue of Silver Surfer, this issue was number 5, August 1969, when on the letters page he saw a missive by one Wendy Fletcher. And she was taking Stan Lee to task on his portrayal of the titular character, uh, Norrin Rad, Mr. Silver Surfer himself. An excerpt from the letter reads, Stan, my dear sweet fellow, what bitter streak of melancholia lurks within the folds of thine ever-hollowed noodle? Do you believe in heroic suffering and all? I do. I believe in heroic suffering and all, but this is ridiculous. You, do you realize that for all practical purposes, your adorable Silver Surfer should have died of a broken heart by now? That's pretty funny. Um, Now, in a 2008 interview with uh, Mr. Media, Richard says, uh, It was a very prescient letter. It was sensitive and compassionate, and I really liked what it said. I also appreciated that it was written by a female. At the time, there were three women reading comics in all the world. (laughs) And so here was a letter from one of them. Wow. Uh, Now, it's hard to to imagine that. It's hard to even conceive today. Yeah. But back then, when ledger's pages were like a big thing, the correspondents would leave their full address to be published uh, so they could become pen pals or whatever. Mm-hmm. So under your name, it would have your street address instead of just, you know, instead of just Phoenix, Arizona, it would have my full address or whatever. Mm. Um, and uh, Richard continues, he goes, I wrote a letter back and lo and behold, got a response. We began a correspondence cross country and soon after that we decided to meet. And that's literally how we met. Now, people meet online all the time, and there are websites dedicated to making that happen. But back in the late 1960s, this was a very, very rare thing. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's yeah. kind of beautiful in a way, and it's nice that it Isn't worked it? out nicely. You know what I mean? Like, there are, I think there are other, a, lot of, a lot of other ways this could have happened. And, <laughs> but maybe I'm looking at it through cynical, cynical 21st century <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> lenses. You know? 
Now, in a uh, 1981 interview with Gary Groth, or is it Groth? Groth? Groth. One of them. Groth. Uh, Richard discusses running up a $700 phone bill on MIT's phones. He says he took out a loan from the college and paid it back gradually. Uh, Wendy and Richard would eventually marry during the summer of 1972 after nearly four years of long-distance correspondence. Wow. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wendy would begin working as an illustrator for Galaxy Science Fiction and Galileo magazines while Richard's MIT degree afforded him a position at the Charles Hayden Planetarium in Boston, Massachusetts as a lecturer, photographer, scriptwriter, and special effects technician. Seems like he had to do everything. He had to run the projector, yeah, right? he had to give the lecture, you know, do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, he would go on to teach high school astronomy and work for IBM until the elves hit it big. Uh, during the mid-1970s, Wendy would perform as part of the Hyborian players at conventions as Red Sonia in Sonia and the Wizard. And there's lots of pictures of her uh, dressed mm-hmm. as Red Sonia, or a few at least online. And uh, she, she looks like the character, I'll tell you what. Absolutely. Uh, direct market visionary Phil Suling was a guest on the Mike Douglas Show in July 28, 1977, to promote the upcoming Philadelphia Comic Con. It's amazing, isn't it? I know. It's. Uh, <laughs> it, I mean, Mike Douglas had some strange guests on there. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, I know he's uh, actually <laughs> promoting this local, a local comic convention. Sure. Um, Douglas asked that Phil bring a superhero with him to the show, and that hero was Red Sonia, portrayed by Wendy Peeney. Mash star Jamie Farr, aka Corporal Klinger, was also a guest on the show, and that's there's footage of that on there's YouTube your strange too. Guy. Yeah, we may uh, we may hear some <laughs> of that later. Uh, Wendy Sonia portrayal would uh, lead her to her first professional comics work, co-writing along with Roy Thomas uh, with a Claire Noto plot, The Singing Tower in Marvel's Red Sonia number six, in November nineteen seventy-seven. Mm-hmm. Now the uh, the origins of ElfQuest here. We have the first ElfQuest story appeared in. They called it an underground comic, but I'm not sure if it was uh, what we consider underground. Yeah. Um, it was a fantasy quarterly. It was published by the independent publishers syndicate, also known as IPS. Uh, Wendy recalls that they were a bit unhappy with the quality of the issue. The cover was unglossed, and they were told it was going to be glossed. Uh, it was uh, flimsy and barely thicker than the newsprint inside. It was, had to be uh, printed in black and white. Yeah, um, I remember, we, and we sort, we sort of looked at this when we did our uh, series of underground comics, and mm-hmm. I think I think it, it fits the bill because it was... Small small distribution, mm-hmm. low-budget print run, but it, it definitely is not the underground comics like you would think Robert Crumb and Jay Lynch yeah. and guys like that. So, yeah, the, 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 things were changing. The direct market was changing the nature of what an underground comics was, and you can learn all about that in our five-part part series on the subject. Yes, <laughs> and they're soon to be re-uploaded very, very soon. All right. uh, <laughs> in 1978, Wendy and Richard borrowed some dough and co-founded Warp Graphics, and that's big W, little a. Big R, big P. That's right. So it's an acronym. Um, now, the first issue that they published was ElfQuest number two, which continued the story that we ran in Fantasy Quarterly. Uh, ElfQuest was published in black and white with a magazine size format rather than using the more classic comic dimensions. Uh, each issue would have a full color cover and a back cover color uh, character portrait. Uh, ElfQuest number one was eventually reprinted by Warp, collecting the Fantasy Quarterly story. Uh, in 1979, the Peenies moved to Poughkeepsie, New York, and wherever that is. Yeah. Uh, I think it's in New York. It's up there. Uh, it's, up, it's, it's what New Yorkers, <laughs> New York City folk call upstate, upstate, and then people in Poughkeepsie say, we're not upstate, but it's, it's up there. 
Yeah. Uh, now, at this point, Richard had left his job at IBM behind and would become the full-time publisher, editor, marketer, and co-creator of ElfQuest. Uh, the concept had been shopped around and was turned down by both Marvel and DC Comics. But that did not stop the first issue, ElfQuest number one, Fire and Flight Part One, from coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cover of this comic features Cutter and Skywise. These are characters we're going to be meeting very soon. Mounted on their wolves, rescuing Redlands from the humans at the sacrificial altar. Actually, it is what happens in the comic. Yes. Uh, it is full color, <laughs> looks to be painted, uh, definitely. Outside the border of the image is a white background. If we're talking about that Marvel epic cover, then we've got Cutter leading his tribe out of the burning forest. Skywise is crouched at his side, Redlands is laying on his side. And Picknos the Troll, another fellow we'll meet uh, very soon, mm-hmm. <laughs> peeks, uh, peeks his head at the, in at the bottom. Uh, this issue opens with a tribe of humans preparing to make a sacrifice to their god, Gotara. The tribal spirit man chants to the beating of drums. There's an altar in the background adorned with skulls, bones, and decorative stone. We don't yet see who might be this night's sacrifice, and we'll ignore the cover long enough to play along. Uh, from here, we get a bit of backstory to this new world. Humans are shown as primitive and barbaric cave people who one day found themselves being visited. Yes, uh, we go to flashback where a crack of thunder splits the skies and a glowing palace descends to the ground below. Uh, the curious humans approach to investigate. When the palace doors open, a family of elves emerged, emerge, uh, flanked by a pair of young trolls and tiny wind critters that we'll soon know as preservers. The elven patriarch extends a friendly hand toward the human and gets his skull cracked in for his troubles. Oh, humans, you are always so quick to crack skulls. We're the worst. (laughs) Uh, The humans overtake the palace, beating down any elf they can catch, though many are able to flee into the forest. So the sheen shifts to a pair of fearful elves peeking through the brush, which is immediately followed by a similar panel from now, as the caption tells us, sort of like a a dissolved scene. Hmm. Where instead of being fearful, though, these elves just look ticked. This is Cutter, chief of the Wolf Riders, and his lifelong friend, Skywise. They, backed by their tribe, are on a rescue mission and are looking on the humans ready to sacrifice to Gotara. Yes, we have the spirit man who goes, Kill the demon! Kill the demon! And we now see that the human sacrifice is going to be Red Lance. Hear, Gotara, the cries of this child of demons. Let his death agony appease your wrath. Redland says, You've had your foot, old man. Get it over with. Now, at this point, uh, Cutter gives the, gives the word to his tribe, and they pounce. The spirit man calls to another human called Talak to kill Redlands while there's still time, to which Cutter stabs him in the throat. Uh, he then tosses Red Lance on the back of his wolf, calls off his tribe, and proceeds to threaten the spirit man, which mm. hindsight tells us might not have been a good no. idea. <laughs> uh, now, uh, away from the humans, Cutter sends Skywise ahead to inform Red Lance's life mate named Nightfall that they're going to be bringing him back alive. And it turns out she didn't even realize he was gone. She says, Skywise, what happened? Red Lance was captured by humans. Red Lance? Oh, no! I love that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the voice or the uh, reaction? All of it. Uh, anyway, back with the humans, they're mourning the loss of Talak. The spirit man uh, promises that the wolf demons will pay for what they've done. Back at the halt, which is where they live, Cutter is, read- is reading Red Lance the Riot Act for hunting alone. Nightshade enters so Cutter may- might deliver some expositional dialogue about why elves and humans do not get along. She wishes they could live somewhere where there are no humans. 
You and me both, sister. Yeah, I'm with you. Later that night, Cutter and Skywise are looking at the stars. Cutter is feeling pretty down. This is the first time he'd ever killed a human, and he's not taking it all that well. He can't shake his worry. He says, I, I never killed a human before. Didn't think it could be done. Something bad will happen soon. I feel it. Skywise goes, ha, you're full of dream berries. What can the humans do to us? They're afraid to come near our home. Mm, funny you should bring that up because the wolves start <laughs> howling like mad and something's about to be very wrong. Cutter's wolf Nightrunner approaches and he speaks to him telepathically. Cutter says, Speak, my friend. What have you seen? <laughs> humans, they bring fire. And I've forgotten that the wolves can do this. I'm not sure this happens all that often. They don't, they don't chat with the wolves throughout I, the rest I, of the series? I, I want to say no, but I, I could be wrong, yeah. but I don't remember this happening terribly often. Um, now, uh, Cutter uses his uh, that telepathic sending power to pass the warning on to some of the men of the tribe. We see One-Eye and his son Scouter, Strongbow, Tree Stump, and Pike. Of note, Cutter does not summon the recently rescued Red Lance. Say that a few times fast. <laughs> uh, now the wolf riders all mount up and head out to confront the human antelopes. Turns out Night Rider, Night Night Rider, <laughs> Night Runner wasn't kidding around. They've brought plenty of fire with them. Yeah, Cutter says, "I warned you, old man. Go away, or we must kill you." No, demon. We shall live, but you and your kind will be ashes before sunrise. Are you mad, human? If you burn the woods, everyone will starve. Your tribe will, as well as mine. Spirit Man don't care even a little bit. No, he's good with that. <laughs> and, and he tosses his torch into the brush. The nearby Strongbow manages to fire a bolt into the Spirit Man's throat for good measure. Yeah. Just seconds too late. They're pretty good about killing humans now, though. They, I think they've all <laughs> they gotten got over it, it seems like. <laughs> Strongbow does not mess around. Uh, in an instant, the entire forest is engulfed in flame. The wolf riders fall back to gather their kin from the halt. Uh, after careful consideration, Cutter decides the best bet for survival would be venturing into a lot of fun voices with the Caverns of the Trolls. Now, that's actually named for Jonathan Troll, right? There's no... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's no real trolls in there. Okay, good. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> they get there, and uh, Cutter pounds away on the door to the toll, to the toll, the troll tunnel. Yeah, you got to pay the toll if you want to yeah, make you... the troll. Yes. Uh, that from behind the door, the troll says, All right, all right, stop your racket. Give a body half a chance, will you? Now, he does open the door, but not quick enough for the wolf riders. They push their way in, yep. much to the poor troll's disdain. And it's here that we're introduced to the man himself, Picknose. <laughs> he, he asks about the hubbub, and Cutter explains about the fire. Picknose says, What do trolls care about outside? That's your business. Out! Get all of out! All of you, get out! And uh, being surrounded by a pack of wolves that all t is all it takes for Picknose to change his tune pretty quickly. <laughs> he, mm -hmm. uh, Cutter insists he escorted his tribe to Greymung, the king of the trolls, and he does. He does, and then Greymung greets the uh, greets his guests with, "What's this? Wolf riders invading my domain? Unthinkable! Pick nose, you miserable worm! Is this how you defend your king?" Cutter explains that they're only here to escape the fire that is overtaking the forest, but Greymung he ain't hearing it. Cutter appeals to Greymung's better judgment. After all, trolls are too afraid to leave the tunnels. Most of the meat they eat they, that they have is a result of the wolf riders deciding to share their hunting catches. They're also responsible for pelts and leathers, as well as healing herbs and medicines. But then Picknose pipes in, claiming they only do so because the trolls can forge weapons for them. 
Picknose doesn't understand the point of trade. Yeah, it basically you have a deal here, but you know, don't you understand? It seems to be anyway. Uh Picknose continues claiming the elves need the trolls far more than the trolls need the elves. Cutters all alright then. Don't bug us next winter, to which Picknose sticks out his tongue. I love that picture. Yeah, I know. It's uh, really, really <laughs> sassy. Skywise comes over to direct his chief's attention to the forges when his bracelet is pulled by a magnetic attraction and a clink to a stone that Greymung is using as a footrest. Cutter tries to help his friend only to find his sword attracted to the stone with a ting. Skywise thinks, uh, thinks this is just the coolest thing he's ever seen, but Greymung shoes him away, claiming it's sacred. When he doesn't back off, Greymung backhands him with a mighty bath. Yeah. And uh, Cutter don't cotton to that. He's not happy with that. He says, Greymung, you martining son of a human. And Greymung, I'm, I'm not going to use the gruff voice here because he's, uh, he's cowardly now. Yeah. <clears throat> Stay back, elf. I'm king. I, I command you. Cutter doesn't want to hear that. He lunches at the Troll King, blade drawn, but Greymung is not his target. Instead, he smacks the stone with the hilt of his knife, chipping off a shard of it for Skywise to use as a keepsake, or had just have. And it actually chips off with the sound effect, chip. And then uh, Cutter, <laughs> Cutter jumps into Greymung's lap, mounts him, grabs him by the beard. Troll, you are a big fat fool, and your subjects know it. Where are they now? Hiding in their holes? I don't think they'd care if I chopped you to bits. It's lucky for you that all I care about is finding a new holt for my tribe. Well, why didn't you just say so? <laughs> and then, <laughs> then Greymung tells Picknose to escort the elves to the Tunnel of Golden Light so that they may find a new home. Picknose starts to question his king, but gets a backhand of the gut before he can finish his thought. Uh, Greymung promises beyond the tunnel lay green and peaceful woods, and absolutely no humans. Uh. Yeah, that's a life. <laughs> and, and so, Picknose guides the 17 elves and 14 wolves through the tunnel. Along the way, the elves sing, and Skywise weaves a string out of his tribe mate's hair so he can wear that chipped piece of lodestone around his neck. Right. And we also find out that that thing is a lodestone, <laughs> and, and it's from the sky, which Skywise is a, a fan of, as you might imagine. Sure. Uh, they finally head down that tunnel and reach the light. Picknose, being a troll, claims that the sunlight is harmful to him, so he sends the elves on ahead. So he can spring the obvious trap that, you know, we all, or the reader certainly knows is going to happen here. Doi. Uh, <laughs> the elves held, head toward the light, and the tunnel behind, the tunnel behind them crumbles down, blocking any chance of their returning to the caverns. The elves realize they've been had. They look into the light, and all there is is barren desert wasteland as far as the eye can see. And a very mean, hot-looking sun also mm -hmm. uh, over the place. So, yeah, that's the end of book one, but mm -hmm. not the end of the story, is it, Chris? No, no, we're going we're gonna to go into uh, sort of a uh, quick and dirty on the original quest, because uh, that's, well, that's what I kind of fell in love with, so we're gonna, we'll go through that. Uh, the first book is uh, Fire and Flight, and pick, you know, we'll pick up right after we left off here with the elves going through the desert. They, uh, they traverse the desert for three days until they happen upon a small oasis-like town filled with darker-skinned elves. This is Soro's End, and the elves are the sun folk. They're welcomed by Sava, who is kind of, a, kind of like a sage or a seer. And she's uh, quite a bit taller than the elves, too. And uh, Sun, Ch Sun Toucher, who's kind of like the chief of the Sun Folk. Um, now, this is, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Okay. 
Cutter recognizes, and we're, we're going to explain what recognition is in a second. He recognizes a lady elf named Lita, who is the uh, village healer. So she has healing powers. Okay. Um, now, recognition is more or less a compulsion to mate. Ah. Uh, <laughs> now, soulmates automatically know one another's soul name. And a soul name is kind of like an elf's true name. Like Cutter's is Tam, T-A-M. Huh. And Lita, being his soulmate, knows it. Um, now, it's involuntary and it has no regard for pre-existing non-recognized relationships. Uh, refusal of recognition, while not fatal, <laughs> leads to uh, increasing physical and mental duress. Uh, recognition facilitates reproduction, where the offspring will inherit the best attributes of both parents. And it's actually the only way without magic to reproduce. So you um, can be in a non-recognized couple. Yes. But, you're just, but there's no reproduction happening there. No. That's just for, you know, to split the rent. Yeah, basically. Okay, fair yeah. enough. That's common law. Yeah. No, they, uh, because they, they, there's a distinction between life mate, which is a recognized couple, and love mates, which are just lovers, basically. All right. Uh, now, Lita thinks Cutter's kind of a creep. Uh, he's a savage barbarian, and she refuses recognition. Uh, she's currently paired with a, a suitor of hers named Rayak, or Ryak. Uh, he's uh, very jealous, and he challenges Cutter to several trials just for the right to court Lita. Cutter wins. And Rayak leaves the Sun Village. Uh, Lita and Cutter get to know each other a bit better, and after uh, she eavesdrops on a story Cutter tells his tribe, she comes around to the fact, the idea that maybe he's not such a bad dude after all. Uh, the pair become life mates, and sometime later, Lita gives birth to twins, a daughter named Ember and a son, Suntop. Well, isn't that nice? It is. Now the next book is The Forbidden Grove. Six years pass, and Cutter and Lita's children are old enough to be fun characters, and not just... <laughs> not just babies. Immobile babies. I'm glad they feel the same way I do about such things. <laughs> uh, a family of humans wanders into the Sun Village, and Cutter ain't pleased, considering humans are the reason they had to abandon the halt in the first place. Can't really hold that against him. He realizes that no matter how far they run, there will always be humans around. And so decides to start his grand quest to find more elven tribes to build their number. He leaves the village along with Skywise and their two mounts. They cross the desert and make their way to their wrecked halt. They get captured by a dysfunctional troll family, which has Picknose as the patriarch. It's here, so this is years, you know what I mean? Things have happened in the troll world, too. Uh, it's here that Cutter learns that his sword, New Moon, holds a key to treasure. And now it was crafted by Two Edge, half elf. Half troll. All gross. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the fellows get the trolls and themselves drunk on dreamberry wine and escape. Cutter's held by a rabid squirrel and begins having hallucinations. He happens upon a human couple who nurse him back to health. They bear a striking resemblance to the creative team, uh, Wendy and uh, Richard. The female, Nona, claims... Uh, that The female, Nona, claims that her people worship bird spirits who resemble Cutter and Skywise. They point the boys in the direction of Blue Mountain. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to get there, they got to pass through a strange forest full of, like, giant cocoons. Uh, they, they see a particularly large one, and Cutter believes that he smells his family's scent. Uh, he cuts into it and finds his family, mm. Lita and the twins. Well, um, convenient. Yeah, they in it. <laughs> they wake up and warn Cutter about an evil that Sava, who was at Seer back at uh, at Sorrow's End, mm. she had seen a uh, an evil on the astral plane and got stuck there. So she's kind of like in a catatonic state. 
Um, now, they had come along with the Wolf Riders. However, along the way, Strongbow shot down a giant bird because Strongbow shoots arrows a lot. Um, now, which le- this led to the uh, tribe being attacked by bird-riding elves. Perhaps those bird spirits Nona spoke Ooh, of. Probably, maybe. I think maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lita and the twins were the only ones able to escape, fleeing into the woods. And it's here that we're formally introduced to the, uh, I'd say charmingly annoying, but sometimes just annoying, uh, <laughs> Petalwing, who's a preserver. And uh, preservers are small humanoid insect-type things with wings. They produce sticky webbing that can make cocoons. And anything wrapped in this wrap stuff will be placed in a sort of suspended animation so people won't age and food won't spoil, stuff like that. This is sort of like the fairy insects, it seems like. Right? Yeah. And, and, they, and they, came down, they came down with the original. Yes, the sex, original palace. Well, with elves, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cutter, his family, Skywise, and Petalwing set out to find the rest of the wolf riders. And that takes us to book number three, Captives of Blue Mountain. Uh, they head to Blue Mountain and find some of their tribes folk. Of interest, they also find humans. They're everywhere, and they worship the bird spirits as well. They're allowed access to them into the mountain and fight with some of those bird riders. They are a fair amount taller and leaner than both the wolf riders and sun folk. They're called the gliders. It's here that we meet Winnowill, who's about as bad as bad can be. She's got Strongbow locked up, and it's mentally torturing him because he shot down the bird. Mm. She has that same sending power the other elves do. However, hers appears to inflict great pain. We also meet Tildak, who is a, an elf mutated to the point where he resembles like a bat, kind of. Yeah, sort of, like a bird or a bat or yeah. something weird, yeah. It's, uh, he's got a birdish. He's unpleasant, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, this oddball immediately recognize, recognizes, in the uh, elf quest sense, recognizes <laughs> Wolfrider Dushine, who is already lovemates with Scouter. Love mates, like we talked about, are unrecognized couples, and so just it's just you understand recognition is an important thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cutter is introduced to the leader of the gliders, Lord Vol. Vol claims to be a child of the High Ones, those elves that arrived via the palace who got beat up by the humans in the, in the very beginning of uh, Book One. He agrees to let Strongbow go if Cutter will introduce them to his children. The gliders seem to have problems in the old recognition department, and so they haven't replicated in centuries. Uh, Vol insists that the wolf riders stay as his personal guests, which peeves off Winnowill. She is worried that Vol might be reinvigorated and might decide to revisit his old passion of locating the palace. Winnowill tries to make the wolf riders leave by kidnapping Cutter's son, Suntop. Suntop has powers, though, similar to Sava, and realizes that she was the great evil that haunted the Sunfolk shaman. Mm-hmm. And so Suntop sends his spirit into Winnowill's in order to seek out Sava. Uh, during a chase, Strongbow shoots Winnowill with an arrow, uh, which allows the rest kind of the wolf riders. Kind of what Strongbow riders... does, huh? I guess he, the, he does the not mess is, around. The name is correct on Strongbow. It is. <laughs> yeah, it kind of. When he was named that at birth, it really didn't give him any options. <laughs> that was it, you know. <laughs> um, now uh, the rest of the wolf riders catch up, and uh, Suntap and Sava are able to escape that astral plane type of area. There, uh, Lita attempts to heal Winnowill's madness. And instead of that, Winnowill jumps off a ledge to escape, and it's one hell of a fall. Whoa. She hits the ground and calls out to Two Edge for help, and refers to him as her son. What? Gross. Yeah. Uh, so we know uh, what Winnowill's type might be. <laughs> now, with uh, Winnowill out of the way, Lord Vol is introduced to Petalwing the Preserver, and he's all, hey, Preserver's not to find a palace. Let's go there now. 
uh, the wolf riders decline. And so Vol tricks them into going on a flight uh, for a flight on a giant bird. Uh, so they're going to be questing whether they want to or not. Or are they? Because mm-hmm. Vol is suddenly shot. Not by Strongbow. <laughs> I would have I expected Strongbow. <laughs> I'd have put money on Strongbow. Uh, this time, it's trolls, and not the sort of cuddly, pick-nose kind either. Uh, the Wolf Riders engage in a brutally bloody battle with the trolls. I mean, this is a bloody battle. Um, one eye is uh, one of the Wolf Riders. He's killed. He takes a mace to the to the head. He's He only has one eye, and he's hitting the blind side. So yes. what are you going to do? Uh, Cutter appears to have been killed. He gets gutted by a spear. This volume ends with the wolf riders being rescued by yet another tribe. These are snow elves who ride reindeer. Wow, the elves riding things abound, boy. They're always riding mm-hmm. something, those elves. Uh, that takes us to Quest's End. Uh, we meet the new snow elves, who are called the Gobacks, and their chiefess, Kavi. They've been warring with the trolls during their own attempt at recovering the palace. Alita's hard at work near- healing her near-death life mate Cutter. She's joined by a bundled-up stranger who's revealed to be a massively powerful... Ryak, Lita's former suitor. Uh, awkward! Uh, Two-Ed shows up, and let me tell you, this dude is nutty. Uh, he says he can guide the elves to the leader of the trolls, whose name is Guttlecraw, so they can reclaim the palace. There's also more talk of Cutter's sword, New Moon, being a key to treasure. The elves are cool with that, but first, an elf orgy. For real. Mm-hmm. A real elf a uh, bone down scene. Indeed. The next day, they head into the belly of the beast, where they find Greymung's trolls are working for Guttlecraw as slaves, including our friend Picknose. Aww. The elves free Picknose and company and suggest they work together in taking down Guttlecraw, even going as far as promising they can have whatever treasure Cutter's sword is the key to. Turns out to be elven armor forged by Two Edge. Pretty much useless to Picknose. He, mm-hmm. he has to be a little more svelte for that, huh? Yes, they got to be a little tiny. Uh, now, uh, Two Edge, he's, uh, he's watching this battle very intently, and he's actually trying to put some dissension between Cutter and Picknose because he's trying to decide which race he's going to align with because uh, he's, you know, being both elf and troll, he's not sure where, he, where his uh, allegiances lie. So he figures he'll just be with whoever's left standing. Fair enough. Uh, in the last battle, uh, Guttlecraw is killed, beheaded, in fact. The head is actually stuck on a post and paraded around. Wow. They really don't mess around. Picknose declares himself the new king of the trolls because he's Picknose. Sure. Uh, the elves reclaim the palace, and they meet Timane, one of the high ones. Uh, she had been in a, uh, a form of a wolf up until this point. Uh, she's able to shapeshift. And uh, she was found on the way to the palace, or on the way to the troll battle, actually. Uh, we learn that the wolf riders are special to this world because they share blood with beasts born of this world. Which tells you that Timane, in her wolf form, might have uh, might have been busy. Um, the uh, quest complete, the wolf riders make their home in the Forbidden Grove. The go-backs go back to their snowy home. <laughs> there is peace between elf and troll. Uh, while Rayak remains in the palace with Tamane, hopeful that together they might make it fly again. Wow, that is quite a sequence of events there, Chris. Let me tell it you, is. that is uh, a lot went down. A lot of characters got a uh, bandied about. Definitely something to check out. But that is not the conclusion of the Elf Quest story, nor the conclusion of the story of the Peenies and uh, their 
trajectory, and we're going to get back to all of that right after this break. You know, science fiction, fantasy, and horror encompasses such a big piece of territory that many great projects go unnoticed sometimes. And I have to admit, I didn't know about ElfQuest until our crack producer here at Sci-Fi Buzz, Susan Hyman, told me all about it. Now, how did you find out about ElfQuest? Believe it or not, I was in my local bookstore perusing the shelves. I come across a compilation comic book, and um, I'd never seen anything like that before in a bookstore. I found out Rich Richard and Wendy Peeney, the creators, mm -hmm. were going to be in town, and we went over to visit them, and she drew oh. this for me. Are you serious? People were clamoring to get this for me. They were offering me money. They were pleading and begging. <laughs> L.A.'s biggest comic book store, Golden Apple, was in a state of pandemonium recently all over the independently published fantasy comic, ElfQuest. What makes this little comic so popular? Who better to ask than a few of the hundreds of fans here? They waited over an hour to get up close and personal with ElfQuest's husband and wife team, Richard and Wendy Peeney. They address a lot of social issues in there that you don't see other places. They're a lot more acceptive of outside-of-the-norm kind of thinking. And the artwork is beautiful, the colors are wonderful, the story is, is well put together. It's a great book. Well, I wanted to meet him up close. I always did. Ever since I started to read ElfQuest. The ElfQuest craze began 15 years ago when an ambitious couple from Poughkeepsie, New York, decided to jump headfirst into the comic book game. Nobody said that we couldn't do it when we started, so we just blindly blundered into becoming publishers. Though the Peenies admit that it's a jungle out there, competitively, they've been able to stand out with a steady dose of distinctiveness and determination. ElfQuest has a decidedly feminine side to it, which is unusual for comic books to begin with. They're largely produced for males by males. I'm a bit of a freak in the industry. <laughs> but uh, the feminine side doesn't necessarily mean soft or squishy. It just means that it, that it takes a deeper look at certain things that, that other comics don't. How did ElfQuest manage to attract female readers since comic book shops are predominantly a male domain? Well, when the first ElfQuest compilation book came out in 1981, the Peenies went mainstream. It turned out to be very, very successful because not only were we able to sell this volume in comic shops, but we were also able to place it into mainstream bookstores, something that very few other comics projects had done before. And we have a great deal of success in mainstream bookstores with ElfQuest. This is how we gain a lot of our female readership, uh, because a lot of women don't ordinarily shop in comic shops, but they do shop in the ch big chain bookstores. Wendy and Richard pride themselves on providing readers with a decent story. As a matter of fact, Wendy, the creative mastermind behind the ElfQuest series, shuns comic book tradition and makes it her top priority. I see a trend in the storytelling in, in a lot of comics that disturbs me simply by the fact that it's not good storytelling. It relies a lot on violence, it relies a lot on cheap shots, it relies a lot on artificial situations set up, oh, let's get this hero against this villain and see who can trash who first, you know. And it's a rip-off of the public, and uh, it's, it's not good storytelling. I see that, I get my back up about it. Looking towards the future, the Peenies are eager to expand their ElfQuest enterprise in a big way. Take over the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm elf madness, you know. <laughs> um, sky's the limit, you know. Uh, we are open at this point to exploring any avenue that will perhaps lead to a breakthrough in the larger media. 
Strangely enough, in the world of comic book fantasy, reality often lurks close by. Among those who stopped by the ElfQuest Fest to offer congrats was a top Hollywood producer. And though they're overjoyed by the attention they're beginning to receive from bigger brass, Wendy and Richard are especially humbled by the ongoing devotion of their fans. We started out mom-and-pop type little business, and this is our 15th anniversary, and, and we're overwhelmed and pleased and honored mm -hmm. that these people would stand out in a hot Los Angeles, Melrose Avenue day just to, 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 to come in to here. To have been here for 15 years and have a crowd like this come, is it makes it very much worth the effort. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We are talking uh, Wendy and Richard Peeney and the ElfQuest saga. Uh, first, I want to give a, a quote here from the Comics Journal, number 42, October 1978. Reviewer Dwight R. Decker said the, of the ElfQuest story in Fantasy Quarterly, number one, the very first thing ever, uh, the most gorgeous thing I've seen come out of comics fandom in the 11 years I've been here. Don't think I've ever seen a professional comic done as well. Though he does include one interesting criticism, a complaint that human beings are depicted as, as, depicted as brutal savages. It struck me odd because Wendy once wrote a letter that was printed in an issue of the Silver Surfer comic book, taking Marvel writer Stan Lee to task for his less than complimentary portrayal of the human race in general. So it looks like that letter resonated. <laughs> it comes back to yeah, exactly. It resonated <laughs> among other people. It's just that Richard was the only one with the wherewithal to write her back. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wanted to quickly say what I thought of this one issue because sure. I'd never read ElfQuest before. And, you know, uh, in general, this is not my kind of genre. You know what I mean? If you, me either. <laughs> I, I know that's true of you also. You and I are both. I mean, this is the kind of story, and I thought it was much more polished than I expected. It looked really. It, I I agree with this review. It looks super professional. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It doesn't look like an independent comic at a glance. I think you know. No. Um, everything down to the lettering. You know the the storytelling. It was all really great. If this had been. You know, spaceships, laser pistols, you know what I mean? The same story, <laughs> just just change the setting. I'd probably go all over it, you know, but uh, it, basically this, this uh, you know, swords and sorcery, elves and, you know, uh, high fantasy always kind of like steers me off. But having read this, I got to say, it was pretty compelling. And I want, I want to know what happens next. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the entirety of the story is so daunting that uh, it's I'm, not, big, yeah. I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to dive in, but it's available for me to read, or, or much of it is available. So uh, maybe in my idle time, I will, uh, you know, pick up an <laughs> issue here and there and keep going along. No, a really good comic. I, I really did enjoy it, and it surprised me because, like I say, I, I kind of been holding, I held back on it for years because I knew it was uh, swords and you know magic and whatever sure. else. But uh, anyway. Let's talk about the Peenies, wrap up their story. Uh, in addition to all their ElfQuest work, Wendy created a pair of graphic novels based on the Beauty and the Beast television show, which ran from 1987 to 1990. That's the Ron Perlman-Linda Hamilton deal, if anyone remembers that. It was pretty huge at the time, as a matter of fact. It was. In 1996, she was uh, contacted by Dennis Stocker, leader of NASA's Lewis Elf team, to design a logo for an experiment. ELF team, really, but, you know... I'm sure they call it Elf in the uh, in the chamber. Uh, and so the Elven character Starfire was created for NASA's enclosed laminar flames, that's what Elf stands for, experiment. As part of space shuttle mission STS-87, Starfire was on board Columbia for its 24th flight. 
launching from the Kennedy Space Center on, in Florida on November 19, 1997. Richard says of it, I've always been a space buff, and, I, and if I can't be on the shuttle myself, this is certainly the next best thing. Wendy's elves originally came from space, and now one of them gets to go back. In 2010, Wendy created an adults-only graphic novel based on Edgar Allan Poe's Mask of the Red Death, which is being adapted as a musical stage show as of 2014. In 2012, the Peenies donated their entire body of work to Columbia University, uh, New, York Library, New York Library's archives. Al Jaffe, cartoonist for Mad, Trump, and Humbug, would follow in 2013, and Chris Claremont also donated his written archives in 2011, so there's a lot of comic work to be found. Mm -hmm. if, you're looking, if you're looking to go to a university, kids, Columbia might go. be your one. Uh, they've won a bunch of awards, including in 1980, the Small Press Writers and Artists Organization Award for Best Comics Artist, obviously Wendy, and Best Comics Editor, which would be Richard. In 1980, Inkpot Award, uh, they both won it, uh, Wendy and Richard. 1985 won the Balrog Award for Best Artist, obviously just Wendy. And Wendy was inducted into the Friends of Lulu Women Cartoonists Hall of Fame in 2002. That's a, uh, you know, pro-feminist uh, organization within comics to promote, you know, women female working creators, in comics. Yeah. and Yeah, mainly female creators, but also, you know, comics for uh, women and girls, so uh, been around a long time, that, that organization. Certainly. Uh, now uh, to wrap up ElfQuest. Um, we're going to go through its publication history here, uh, starting with the one that I discovered it, uh, or I discovered the single issues anyway in, which was uh, Marvel, Epic, uh, their Epic Comics line. Uh, a little bit about that. In 1982, Jim Shooter launched Marvel's Epic Comics publishing line, which would serve primarily as Marvel's creator-owned line of comics. Uh, this sprung out of uh, Marvel's own Epic Illustrated magazine, which was launched in spring of 1980, and that was uh, sort of a Marvel's attempt at chasing heavy metal magazine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked much. about it a few times. It, sure. it, it comes up. It does. Um, in 1985, Marvel came a call into the Peenies for reprint rights to the original Quest run of ElfQuest. So this would be the 20 warp issues, which would translate into 32 Marvel issues, mm -hmm. uh, less pages per issue. Uh, Wendy would provide new art for opening splash pages because that's, you know, Marvel had the opening splash. And uh, we'd also have new chapter beginnings because of the page differentiation. Um, now, in a 2014 interview with Comics Alliance, the Peenies said, uh, Richard says, by the time we finished the first series of ElfQuest in 1984, we were shipping off to press 100,000 copies of each issue. Wow. Nuts, right? Unbelievable. Uh, Wendy says we were outselling the X-Men. Uh, Richard clarifies, we were outselling some of Marvel's X-Men titles or DC's Batman and Superman titles. Not the first line, but the second line of books from those companies, which is crazy. It's still amazing, you know? So, Isn't it? Are, are, are they, they can't be talking about Excalibur, really? Stuff like that? No. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. <laughs> um, now, Marvel's epic line afforded the Peenies wider distribution into spinner racks at newsstands and grocery stores and introduced a whole new generation of readers to the property. Uh, the Marvel run was in full color, with uh, Glynis Oliver working on 28 issues as colorist, and Petra Scotesi or Scotesi coloring the other four. The uh, epic series run would uh, go from cover date August 1985 through March 1988. I mean, that's just that's amazing. You know what I mean? Uh, that they had yep. to rejigger the whole thing yeah. to make it work for Marvel, and then got, but it got a color run. I mean, it's definitely worth their time to do that. Certainly, uh, but it must have been a 
pain in the tuchus, as my father would say. <laughs> Quite an undertaking. Yeah. Uh, then they moved on to Father Tree Press. ElfQuest was collected into trade paperback and published by Starblaze Graphics, which is an imprint of specialty book publisher The Donning Company. The original quest was collected in four trades between 1981 and 1984. When Starblaze when Star went kaput, the Peenies started the Father Tree Press imprint with which they could publish their own trades. The first eight volumes, which was Original Quest, Siege of Blue Mountain, Kings of the Broken Wheel, were collected under this banner. Along with the two Elf Quest Gatherums, which is what you first saw. Oh, no, you must yeah. have seen uh, the epic thing, right? No, I saw the Gatherums first. Oh, all right. Yeah, uh, they led me to the epics. Which I get you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Gatherums was really just, like you said, ephemera. It was sketches and, and yeah. articles and stuff. Uh, subsequent volumes and further printings of the originals would be published by Wolf Rider Books. Now, uh, Apple Comics. We have Apple Comics or Apple Graphics. This was a uh, imprint founded by Fantagraphics Books co-founder Michael Catron in 1986. It was originally an imprint for Warp Graphics, however, maintained its own finances. Upon launch, uh, Richard Peeney handed off publishing and marketing tasks to Apple so that he could refocus on the creative end, you know, editing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the the series that immediately followed or followed a little bit after uh, the original quest was ElfQuest Siege at Blue Mountain, and that was an eight issue story that picked up several years continuity wise after the original quest. Uh, this would run under the public. This would run published under the Apple Comics banner from cover dates March 1987 through December 1988. Mm. And you got to remember, too, at this time, the independent market is booming. It's uh, picking up steam. Thing, yep. <laughs> things are happening behind the scenes beyond ElfQuest that are really making it uh, quite visible, I guess is the best way to put it. And lucrative. And lucrative. Potentially. Yeah, for some. Uh, <laughs> Kings of the Broken Wheel, back under the warp branding. Peenies uh, published the nine part Kings of the Broken Wheel from cover date June 1990 to February 1992. Was that Apple Comics also, or? That was back at Warp, yeah, and that's oh, okay. that's kind of where I fell oh, out. Right, right. <laughs> this is a uh, this is where I fell out of the collecting because during Kings of the Broken Wheel, there was a like a few pages where the elves were like in hibernation or they just weren't shown, mm. and all you saw was a tree with these uh with these like like I guess you know they would slice a, a mark like a hash mark in the tree for every year that passed, uh-huh. and like hundreds of years have passed in these few pages. And my continuity obsession it just <laughs> really irked you, huh? Yeah, it bugged me. Um, so I, I kind of fell out around then. Um, I've, I actually haven't read a, a whole lot after it, but I'm, I'm revisiting it now with the reprints. Wow. All right. Well, uh, then that we might be just in time because there was a rebranding <laughs> uh, many years <Yes>. ago. <laughs> the warp <laughs> acronym was dropped, and the publishing house was simply known as Warp, capital W only, just Warp. Several ElfQuest Elf series w- launched throughout the early 1990s, almost uh, definitely facilitated by the rampant speculation running amok in and around the comics industry. Strike while the iron's hot, they say. And here, here they are, ElfQuest New Blood, 35 issues, August 1992 to January 1996. Featured the first non-peeny ElfQuest stories, including one by John Byrne. Then there was uh, ElfQuest The Hidden Years, that was 30 issues, May 1992 to March 1996. Yeah, and this is where my chronology gets iffy because I thought that these stories happened during the notches on the tree years, 
but I'm not sure now because I, I haven't gotten to them in the reprints yet. I've got it waiting for waiting for school to end, but I haven't actually sat down with them just yet. I mean, I got you know not not I've only read the one issue, but just seeing how these people have created you know this uh, incredible this lore yeah. story i would find it hard to believe that it didn't work you know but uh yeah oh, i'm sure it does you'll have to let us know when you finally get <laughs> to reading all of it in uh, 15 years uh elf quest shards that was 16 issues from Ar- august 1994 to march 1996 that runs parallel to hidden years and then we have elf quest blood of the blood of 10 chiefs which is 20 issues running from Je- july 1993 to september 1995 uh this fills in the history of the wolf riders from the the arrival of the high ones to all of their chiefs all 10 of them including uh, cutter's father bearclaw wow. as his time as chief and uh we have elf quest 2 spear which is a five issue miniseries october 1995 through february 1996 this told the story of the mad chief of the wolf riders uh, two spear uh, ElfQuest Kavi, six issues, October 1995 through March 1996. This is the story of the Gobax chief, Kavi. We met her briefly earlier. Yep. Uh, now, this one says that it does occur during the sleeping period of Kings of the Broken Wheel. Okay. So I, I, that, which, which is the reason why I was unsure if the rest of Hidden Years did, if they didn't note it as such. Maybe, but, uh, maybe yeah, it jumps around. Maybe yeah, d- different be. tribes have different Hidden Years or something. But, could uh, be. Definitely sounds interesting. I, I, I love a good prequel. Absolutely. Uh, then there was ElfQuest The Rebels. That was 12 issues, November 94 to February 96. And at the same time, ElfQuest Jink. Uh, 12 issues, November 94 to February 96. Both of these take place 900 years in the future. That's nice. Uh, ElfQuest Metamorphosis, that was a one-shot, April 1996. All storylines were collapsed into this oversized one-shot, from which ElfQuest Volume 2 sprang and ran. That was 33 issues from May 96 to February 1999. Uh, in March of 2003, publishing and merchandising rights for the property were licensed to DC Comics. Whoa. So Marvel and DC. Uh, now, the Peenies maintained creative control, though. Uh, the first DC publication was a 25th anniversary edition of the book we just discussed, uh, featuring new coloring and lettering. Uh, DC would uh, release several ElfQuest archives. Now, uh, fans of DC Comics know what the archives are. Those are those those uh, neat-looking $50 books that uh, yeah. our mouths used to water over <laughs> back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. Which actually, it's often uh, today, you can pick up for a song. but uh, For a song, yeah. Yep. But yeah, they, this was the, these were the additions to have back, way back when. Oh, absolutely. Uh, now, they, DC would also release ElfQuest in a manga-sized digital form. I'm sorry, digest format. Uh, and this was the first time the stories were going to be presented in chronological oh, order, wow. yeah, which is uh, pretty cool. Uh, so, like, you're starting way back. So you're not starting with what we just read. So you're um, starting with, like, the prequels, like we just yeah. the Hidden Years or mm-hmm. whatever, some of that maybe. Are they in color, do you know? They're in black and white. Well, they're, I think they're, that which makes sense for Digest, so that's, that's yeah. cool so. Yeah, and they were, they were on par price-wise with manga, too. They were, like, 10 bucks for a nice, thick, nice, nice. thick tankoban there. Um, DC would uh, through DC they would do uh, two miniseries. We have or I'm sorry, one miniseries and one original graphic novel. Uh, the graphic novel is ElfQuest: The Searcher and the Sword that came out in 2004, and the miniseries was The Discovery, and that was four issues through uh, 2006. Nice. So there's plenty out there to read, and luckily, a ton. Luckily, there's uh, from March 2008 to March 2009, the entire ElfQuest library was uploaded to ElfQuest.com to allow people to read the entire story for free. 
and it's still there. In fact, I used it for this very episode. That's how I mm-hmm. read it. So it can be done. Uh, the Peenies used boingboing.net to release teaser pages for the Final Quest prologue. One page per week was released, and the complete version was released as the Final Quest special in October 2013 by Dark Horse Comics. Speaking of whom, Dark Horse Comics put out Elf Quest, the Final Quest, 24 planned issues, January 2014 to the present. Yep. And then there's the complete Elf Quest. These are phone book sized collections of older material. Three currently released, with a fourth recently are just about to be solicited. And these are also black and white, right? Yeah, they, we, the third volume. Them. Yeah, the third volume has a like a nice chunk in the middle that's in color, and it looks amazing. Interesting. Um, I haven't. I've read the first two over again, but I haven't gotten to the third one yet. I've got it, and I actually just uh, a few days ago put my pre-order down for the fourth one. So it is. Uh, it is about to be out. I mean, obviously, whatever whatever way a reader wants to check it out, uh, online being the cheapest and you know re- most ready way, but. Yeah. For my money, I think that these uh, the complete Elf Quest sounds like the way to go if you want to get a nice, nice chunky uh, reading done. That's that's the way to do it. But anyway, that's yeah, just one guy's they're very, opinion. <laughs> they're very reasonably priced. They're they're not the kind of really fat book that's hard to read from. Oh, like yeah. <laughs> we, we've all had those trades that are really fat, and you think they're cool, and then oh, you open God. it up, and you can't read like the, the inner third yeah, of the you, page. You can't open it up. The trapping <laughs> is so bad. The gutter is vanished. Or forget it. Like yep. some of these omnibuses nowadays, it's like, yep. yeah, I really, I really want to hold a 15-pound book in my hand while I read about whatever, you know, Thor or whatever it is. <laughs> you need to do it from across the room. You know, uh, I, need, I, need a, I need a friend to help me out. You know what I mean? Please, can you, can you hold one half? I'll hold the other half. And yes. Read that to me. It's way over there. <laughs> uh, now, uh, the the peonies weren't the only thing the only fellows to get awards here. We have the uh, the ElfQuest series themselves got the award. Uh, we got in 1979 the Ed April Award for Best Independent Comic. Uh, 1979 and 1980 the Alley Award. Uh, 1981 Fantasy Press Comic Arts Award for Best Alternative Comic. Uh, 1983 Small Press Writers and Artists Organization Award for Best Comic. 1983 again uh, Heroes Award for Best Black and White Magazine. 1986, Fantasy Festival Comic Book Award for Best Alternative Comic. Uh, 1989, the Golden Pen Award. And interestingly enough, in 1987, the character Skywise was inducted into MIT's freshman class. Wow. I wonder, did he graduate? I don't know. Maybe he stole I don't know. He might be. Yeah. He probably (laughs) knew a lot about astronomy somehow. I I don't know uh, who who could have uh, influenced that. (laughs) Um, But, you know, if you couldn't tell... By the fact that ElfQuest has been published by pretty much every comic book publisher uh, yeah. that could get their hands on it, this is a highly respected series. The Peenies are very, very respected in the industry. Uh, I, I would say so many people today, you know, Chris has his story. A lot of people have their own ElfQuest stories and, mm-hmm. you know, how they came to love the series. So ElfQuest characters and themes have been featured in kind of cameos. Throughout mm-hmm. comics is one of my favorite kind of things, these little Easter eggs or whatever. So we're going to mention, uh, I don't know how complete this list is, but it seems pretty comprehensive. It's a bunch of them. Yeah. <laughs> In uh, Harbinger, number 13, January, 19th, January 1993, that was a Valiant comic. Character Zephyr is a big fan of ElfQuest. Actual pages from ElfQuest Hidden Years, number four, are included in the issue, which served to inspire Zephyr to rise to a challenge. In Boris the Bear, number seven, February 1987, from Dark Horse, it's Boris. He helps the elves, and for reasons that can only be explained 
as it's Boris, the Smurfs get involved. <laughs> uh, Charlton Bullseye number 10. That was December 1982 from Charlton. It was a Richard Peeney cameo and gets socked by Thunder Bunny. Thunder Bunny would eventually have a publishing stint at Warp Graphics, uh, June 1985 to February 1986. Yep, uh, DC Comics presents number 52, December 1982 from DC Comics. Uh, this is uh, Superman teaming up with the Doom Patrol. Uh, there's a Skywise cameo as he's a balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Uh, other characters that get balloons is are uh, Cerebus the or Cerebus the Oddvok. I always say Cerebus when I was a kid. <laughs> Cerebus the Oddvok and Judge Dredd. If, if I um, recall, they're all kind of a little bit off-brand, right? Of course, yeah. But, yeah like, we, you know who they has, are, like, green but hair. Yeah, yeah, they're a little off, but they're 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 who they are. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Elvin number zero. This is a Malibu book, October 1994. A uh, copy of ElfQuest New Blood, number 12, appears on a nightstand. Uh, the cover is the same, except the title's been changed to Elf World. Okay. Uh, E-Man, number 17, uh, August 1984, from First Comics. Smelt Quest uh, features some sort of kind of familiar characters, <laughs> except they all have green skin. Get the real um, Yankovic territory now. Here. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, now, Fantastic Four, number 242, May 1980, 1982, by Marvel Comics. Uh, Phantom of the Sun Village is, uh, is being rehearsed as a stage show with an actor going over his lines, which are all from ElfQuest. Now, was that a John uh, Byrne book? You know? uh, of course it was. Well, it had to yes. be, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was a big fan of, uh, of ElfQuest, for sure. Um, we have Ghost Rider, Volume 2, Number 14, October 1975, from Marvel. Uh, Wendy and Richard cameo in it. Wow, even before. And that's way uh, early. Yeah, that, that's before ElfQuest That's came. before ElfQuest, yep. Uh, New Mutants, Number 21, November 1984, from Marvel. During a slumber party, the girls of New Mutants discuss ElfQuest. In Smacks, Number 1, October 2003, that's from America's Best Comics uh, through DC. A uh, very brief cameo by a beer-gutted cutter being yelled at by a moo-moo-wearing Lita. In Teen Titans number 21, July 1982, in DC Comics, Wendy Peeney, at Fletcher here, gets mixed up in the Church of Brother Blood. In Uncanny X-Men number 153, that was January 1982, from Marvel Comics, Kitty Pride wears an ElfQuest shirt, and there's a cameo of a preserver who is referred to by a pointy-eared bush dweller as Peeney. Uh, that I would have to say another John Byrne uh, thing there. That was uh, Claremont. Oh, Cla all right then. You know yep. they all. You know uh, many people love this series. So sure. It's too much for me to assume. In uh, Cerebus number fifty-two, July nineteen eighty-three, from Aardvark Vanheim, uh, Cerebus receives a pair of elf guests. <laughs> uh, in Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld number twelve. Uh, December 1985, DC Comics. Amy Winston arrives to a babysitting gig, and there's an ElfQuest comic on the floor. Certainly. And I bet there are more out there, but uh, that's, that's... There almost has to be, yeah. huh? <laughs> but uh, that's, that's uh, you know, well-featured, and and you could tell well-beloved well by people, you know, that they really dig the series and wanted to get pay it, pay it its due. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we are talking about um, about a husband and wife couple. Mm -hmm. And we figured that uh, maybe we want to talk about some other husbands and wives in comics. Sort of a rare sort of a rare plum husbands and wives sure. in comics. So, yeah, it's thought it'd be a nice opportunity to maybe uh, unveil some more romantic entanglements. But I, I just want to break in for one second, Chris, to say that hmm. these bios are not full bios. That you Sure. Know, First of all, finding the information about some of these uh, specific, you know, couples, how they met and whatever was 
not as easy as uh, you might think. There was nothing in the <laughs> in the love registry or whatever. Um, but you know, this is really concentrates on the couples, the work they've done together. Any of these creators that were that were mentioning could warrant and deserve a full bio, and some of them or all of them eventually will get one. Will, but yeah. I just wanted to say that that don't expect to see that uh, right here because it's yeah. too much. Yeah, the cosmic treadmill of 25 years from now is going to have a real easy time because they'll just look back on everybody's Facebook walls and, exactly. and everything will be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we're going to start with uh, Walter and Louise Simonson. We talked about Walter just recently uh, during our RoboCop First Terminator right. uh, episode. Uh, to re recap him here, he was uh, born September 2nd, 1946 in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, Mary Louise Wheezy Alexander was born on uh, September 26th, 1946 in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Walt began drawing DC's war titles in 1972, uh, began writing and drawing at Marvel in the late 70s. Louise came up through Archie and Warren as an editor in the early 70s. Uh, she began at Marvel at in 1980. She was editing Uncanny X-Men, most notably. Uh, Luis and Walt met in 1973. Uh, it was, was probably right after uh, Walt first visited New York mm -hmm. uh, with uh, Star Slammers in his portfolio looking to uh, pitch to some comic publishers. Uh, they began dating in August of 1974 and would get married in 1980. Uh, they collaborated on X Factor from 1988 through 1990. I'm sorry, 1989, and made a cameo appearance in the 2011 Thor feature film together. Which is nice, isn't it? And there's Roy and Dan Thomas. This is Roy William Thomas Jr., or, or you might just know him as Roy Thomas. Born November 22nd, 1940 in Jackson, Missouri. Danette Max Coto, born January 30th, 1952. Roy came to New York in 1965 and almost immediately began working at Marvel after that brief three-week stint at DC Comics where he just couldn't stand Mort Weisinger. Yeah. Uh, the two of them got married in 1981, right as Roy signed a three-year exclusivity contract with DC after a fallout with Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. Now, this is total conjecture. I don't know that these things are related, but just for context, maybe after making one life change, which was to leave Marvel, where he had worked for, you know, almost a, uh, yeah, like over <laughs> a decade and basically had, like, created his whole life there, uh, he was willing to take on another one at the same time. And maybe even less likely, he went to D.C. because she was already working there, that Dan was already working there. I don't hmm. know. That is total conjecture, folks, so that is, I don't know if that's true. Um, but you know, it's when you look through these things, the timeline, you see these things happening at the same time, you wonder if there's a correlation. Yeah. Uh, Roy credits Dan with the idea for Eric, Son of Thunder, when she posited the question, what if a naked Native American had discovered Europe? And, uh, Dan, who did legally change her name around this very time in the early 80s, began writing Eric with number 12, August 1982, and collaborated with Roy on nearly every project after that. The two co-wrote Wonder Woman number 300, February 1983, and Roy pointed out in 1999 that she was the first female creator to ever receive credit on Wonder Woman. How about that? Look at that. And they're still together yeah. to this day, folks. Everything's swell. Yeah, whenever I think of them, I think of uh, All-Star Squadron yep. and uh, West Coast Avengers. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's like, uh, yeah, they're co-writers pretty much on virtually everything from yep. Iraq on. So uh, there you go. Good team. 
Absolutely. Uh, next up, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Amanda Kana. Uh, James Palmiotti was born August 14th, 1961. Amanda Kana born August 18th, 1967. Amanda attended the Cubit School of Art in Dover, New Jersey, and uh, would get a job as Bill Sienkiewicz's assistant in the mid-1980s. I don't think I've ever said Sienkiewicz's before. Yeah, I don't, I don't think he has either. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> no. Jimmy attended the High School of Art and Design in New York City. Uh, he began working for Marvel in 1991, inking The Punisher, Ghost Rider, uh, and titles in the new and short-lived uh, 2099 series, or 2099 series, right. and some other books as well. The two met when Amanda was penciling and Jimmy was inking Gargoyles uh, from Marvel in 1994. The uh, see here, uh, the cover of Gargoyles number one, February 1995, was their first shared work. And uh, this Gargoyles is based on the uh, that Disney Afternoon cartoon. Right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there ever was another one, but I just wanted to make it clear that, yeah, this is the Disney cartoon yeah. adaptation. Which actually well, was, there was pretty, that... pretty popular at the time. Yeah. Yeah, there was that Gargoyle character in Defenders that I think had a uh, miniseries, but that was like early 80s, Did Katie Prize Gargoyle have a, anything? That was a dragon, man. Oh, right. Sorry, that's right. Sorry. You are correct. <laughs> Now, uh, the two were friends for years, and they began dating in the early 2000s. They uh, got married in Florida on August 6th, 2013. Uh, Jimmy has inked Amanda's pencils way too many times for us to actually uh, parse them all out. Uh, though we'll give you one. Uh, they did Image Comics' The Pro in 2002, written by Garth Ennis. Ugh, this book. <laughs> Anytime I can get you to mention The Pro, I'm going to take it. Because <laughs> I know it's going to make you blush and feel weird. <laughs> this this book makes the strongest case for the for the Apple the but the this is a bad book. Yeah. <laughs> now, as writer and artist, they've worked together on Terra, which is a D, from DC Comics from January and February nineteen. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm I've been put off by the pro. The here. pro knocked you off your off it your just, feed no, here. Yeah. And I was already coming off my game here. <laughs> <laughs> together, they did Terra from DC Comics, January February two thousand nine. This uh, we talked about this a little bit during our uh, Teen Titans talk, uh, Judas contract talk because this is another take on Terra or a different Terra. Yeah. Um, also Power Girl, which uh, was come out from DC from July 2009 through May 2010. And they are uh, currently co-writers on Harley Quinn from DC Comics uh, from uh, November 2013 through I think the contract extends extends to it's forever. A, yeah, when the sun burns uh, out, I think it says yes. on there. And Amanda usually draws the cover for that. I think uh, I don't remember the uh, fella's name who was doing the uh, interiors on that. Oh, they have a few people, but yeah, it's oh, uh, John Timms and Chad Harden does it Harden's sometimes. They, they have a few people that work on that. And uh, before uh, Rebirth, they were doing a Starfire from DC from uh, 2015, 2016. That went for uh, 12 issues. Yeah, very much like a Harley, but with, she was orange. Pretty much. Uh, now we go to David and Meredith Finch. Canadian board David began working in comics in 1993, drawing Cyberforce for Top Cow Image. He drew this until 1997, then he disappeared for six years. Returned in 2003 to draw a year long arc of Ultimate X Men written by Brian Michael Bendis. They moved on to Avengers after that, and David Starr just kept rising pretty much from that moment on. Meredith and David met in 2006, married the following year on February 10th. It was a one year of courtship. Meredith didn't realize comic books were more than superhero punch-em-ups at first, but on their first date, David had some comics in the trunk of his car, and she checked them out, and so there was more to him. 
Uh, for a while, she manages art sales and their children. But as they got, as the kids got older, she pursued her own comics writing ambitions. She'd already been writing for a long time, and it was David that said, try comics. Uh, she got, cut her teeth writing some stuff for Zenoscope. Uh, the two of them collaborated on Wonder Woman from DC Comics. That was 2015 to 2016. And David Finch is currently exclusive to DC Comics and draws Batman, among many other covers, and whatever strikes him, I presume. He seems to pretty much write his own ticket there. And Meredith now yeah. writes a comic book called Rose for Image Comics. Hmm. We have uh, Matt Fraction and Kelly Sue DeConnick. Uh, Matt Fraction was born December 1st, 1975 in Chicago Heights, Illinois. Uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick was born July 15th, 1970 in Ohio. They would meet on a message board of uh, comics writer Warren Ellis. Um, they married on September 20th, I'm sorry, September 29th, 2002, one year to the day after their first phone call. Wow. That's another one-year courtship. Very, yeah, very rapid. <laughs> I got married after eight years dating my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so Matt first visited in October 2001 and proposed to Kelly Sue in December of that year. Uh, Matt lived in Kansas City, Missouri at the time, and Kelly Sue was in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Kelly Sue broke into comics writing a five-page text story for CSI crime scene investigation Dominoes Number 5. came out in December of 2004. You ever collect Matt that comic, Chris? You read that one a lot? <laughs> oh, all the time. I, 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 mean, you could, I, I was like, I looked, I, I had to look at this twice because I was like, was this a TV show? I don't know. I can't believe this was about everything is a comic out there, folks. Somewhere. Everything. Yeah. Yep. Now, Matt Fraction was an employee at Heroes Ain't Hard to Find comic shop in Charlotte, North Carolina in the late 1990s. His first comics work was The Five Fists of Science and Casanova. Oh, it was Five Fists of Science. And Casanova. Yeah. <laughs> Image Comics in 2006. Those are two different titles. Yep. Uh, I think Casanova are... still comes out, but there's not like a really. I think it, they moved it to Icon when he was uh, when he went Marvel exclusive. But it's it's not on any release schedule you can count on. I think. I, I doubt think, it. I yeah. think you sit around, do nothing, and then one day a Casanova issue shows up, and that's really how yep. it works. <laughs> Uh, now, the two of them have written a lot for Marvel, uh, though never together. Uh, Kelly Sue today is uh, best known for writing Captain Marvel for Marvel and Bitch Planet for Image. Matt has written Iron Man, Fantastic Four. He had a, uh, a pretty celebrated run on Hawkeye. Mm -hmm. uh, he also writes Sex Criminals with Chip Zdarsky. 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 I've read the name a hundred times. I just never knew never how had to say, say it. it. Yeah. Never had to say it. Uh, now uh, he's uh, he's the artist for Sex Criminals, and that comes out from Image. Uh, they have a pair of children, a pair of dog, a pair of cats. I'm sorry, and one dog. There you go. That's beautiful, beautiful family. I think they live in Oregon. Uh, Terry and Rachel Dodson. Terry's from Oregon, and he's a penciler. Terry Dodson began his illustration career in 1991 at Revolutionary Comics, drawing issues of rock and roll comics. You ever look at these old black and white comics? I used to get these as a kid. Yep. Uh, I think he actually specifically did the Rod Stewart one. Okay. In 1993, he went to Marvel, penciling many of the X-Men-related titles, including a sustained stint on Volume 2 of Generation X. Mm -hmm. Rachel's a colorist inker, and she broke into comics inking Terry's year-long year run on Harley Quinn in 2002. They collaborate almost exclusively now. Terry is drawing, she's doing the inking. That's how it works. And currently they're doing the art on uh, a series called Red One for Image Comics. We have uh, Mike and Laura Allred. Uh, Michael Dalton Allred is from Roseburg, Oregon. A lot of Oregon folk here. Yeah. Uh, Laura was born Laura Lee Bradford. 
They would meet at Brigham Young University, Idaho, Idaho, uh, then known as Ricks College. This was back in 1980. They would get married, another one-year courtship, July 22, 1981. <laughs> Inspired by Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, Mike and Laura produced a superhero comic called They in 1986. Uh, it would be written by Mike's brother, Lee. Uh, their big claim to fame was producing Madman uh, for Image from 1992 to 2002. They work pretty much as a duo on everything now. They're currently providing the art for Marvel's uh, Silver Surfer. That's the uh, Dan Slott one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dan Slott's the writer of that. And they're uh, just about to start uh, a Young Animal DC series called Bug the Forager, which is uh, written by, again, Lee. So it's an all-all-red, uh, you know, uh, project. Yeah, and they've done that a few times. I remember at the end of... Uh... FF, which started being run by Matt, it was Matt Fraction. He yeah. wrote it in the beginning, but he, you know, vanished. And something happened, and Lee did like the last four issues, and that's right. They're kind of, they 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 all work together, but Laura and Mike are a inseparable professional Absolutely. pair. They will, you know, they are always working together. Uh, move on to Phil and Kaja Foglio. Phil Foglio, born May first, nineteen fifty-six, in Mount Vernon, New York. He attended the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts, earning a BFA in cartooning. Kaja Foglio, born January 12, 1970, in Bellevue, Washington. She attended the University of Washington, where she was heavily involved with the local chapter of the Society for Creative Anachronism. Huh. And that's where she met Phil, through the SCA. <laughs> well, I don't know what that is, but there, there it is. Uh, they married in 1993. Uh, the pair founded Studio Foglio LLC in 1995, and for publisher Donning Starblaze, Phil Foglio illustrated the Myth Adventures series of fantasy novels by Robert, Robert Lynn Asprin. He later adapted the first book, Another Fine Myth, into an eight-issue comic book series from Warp Graphics. How about that? It all comes around. This led to mainstream work like Angel and the Ape for DC Comics, which is one of Chris's personal favorite comics, as I know. Oh, it's only, it's only <laughs> topped by his, his run on Stanley and his monster. That was, that was the other one around the same time. Yeah, he did a, he did a bunch of things. Uh, Right around then, a couple of weird little projects for Marvel, too. Um, mm. They've drawn cards from Magic the Gathering together. That was Kaja's first professional work. That was early 90s or mid-90s-ish. And uh, they began to co-write and publish the Gaslamp fantasy series Girl Genius in 2001, which is still ongoing as a webcomic, updates pretty regularly. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, Robert Crumb and... How do we say this? Alien or A-line? A- Alien. Aileen. Okay, so Robert Crumb and Aileen Kaminsky Crumb. Uh, Robert Dennis Crumb was born August 30th, 1943 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Aileen Goldsmith was born August 1st, 1948 in Long Beach, New York. Uh, Kaminsky is the last name of her first husband, so born Goldsmith, then moved on there. Uh, Robert met Aileen in San Francisco during the early 70s when his star was on the rise, and they would marry in 1978. They have one daughter, Sophie, who was born in 1981. Uh, Robert and Aileen collaborate all the time, primarily on jam strips uh, titled Drawn Together. That's where Robert writes and draws one half of the panel, and Aileen draws the other half. Yeah, and you got to see it to understand it, folks. I, yeah. All I can say about it. <laughs> and uh, finally, we have John Ostrander and Kim Yale. John Ostrander was born, John Ostrander was born uh, April 20th, 1949. He studied theology with the intent of becoming a Catholic priest. He began writing comics in 1983. His first published works were stories about the character Sargon, Mistress of War, which appeared in the first comic series, Warp. No, not related to... No relation. <laughs> yeah, to Warp Comics. 
Uh, based on a series of plays by or the Organic Theater Company in Chicago, of which John Ostrander was a member. Just prior to entering the comics industry, though, Ostrander had a supporting character named for him in the Daring New Adventures of Supergirl series written by his buddy Paul Kupperberg. Kim Yale was born November 22, 1953 in Evanston, Illinois, and her first published comics work appeared in 1970, 1987's the New America Limited series, a spinoff of Timothy Truman's Scout series published by Eclipse Comics. She and Ostrander married that same year. Yale and Ostrander developed the character Oracle from Barbara Gordon, you know, out of uh, The Killing Joke, and wrote her origin story, Oracle Year One, published in the Batman Chronicles number no. 5, Summer 1996. They co wrote lots together, including Manhunter and Suicide Squad, the biggest ones, but. I, I, I gotta say that they more co-created the modern version of the Suicide Squad. The only reason they couldn't get creator yeah. credit is because of that, you know, Silver Age series, which was yeah, the War series, which was yeah, just a standard, you know, kind of a a, a group of soldiers, more or less. Yeah, uh, our understanding of the Suicide Squad today as kind of B-list villains forced Wasn't to do the, yeah. this is this is they created this the two of them. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that gotta give them that kind of credit, even though they won't ever get that. Real credit, but that's life. Yeah. Uh, Yale wrote an ongoing column in the comics Buyer's Guide in which she detailed her battle against breast cancer and very unfortunately passed away from breast cancer on March 7th, 1997. So we end on a very high note there. But yes. if you have any other uh, couples that we missed or you think that should have been highlighted or if you have uh, your own love story to tell us about people or comics, we'd rather hear about your love story with comics or... <laughs> Any comments on ElfQuest or the uh, Peenies, please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Cosmic T-Mill History, on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. And I'll tell you every week, go head over to Chris's personal blog. Chris is on infiniteearth.com, where he reviews a new DC comic every day of the week. And you have just been bringing out some gems from the half price bin, you know, half price book <laughs> yep. boy. We're seeing some Bronze Age, Bronze Age lovelies in there. We're seeing some Absolutely. wild books are coming out. So, yeah, you, you got to go check that out. The uh, reviews are great. The commentary is awesome. There's ads at the yeah. end. And uh, you're really missing out if you're not looking at that. And, and I actually did publish a, or I, I, I wrote a, uh, a review of the ElfQuest 25th anniversary from DC about a year ago. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's up there on the blog. And it's, uh, Actually, one of my first comments ever on the blog was from Richard Peeney. Wow. He, he thanked me for writing it. He had, uh, he found it and was uh, he checked it out. And you were like, wow, I'm glad I didn't swear through the whole thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's actually, he was very gracious. Oh. And uh, I, I, I meant to say this, but I couldn't figure out where to put it, so I'll put it here. Uh, when I was... Uh, about 13 or 14, me and my buddies, we were introduced to mini comics. We'd never seen mini comics before. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is 93, 94, so everything is kind of popping with speculation and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, one town over from us in Bohemia, there was a, uh, a mini comic producer. And uh, we saw it, and, you know, the art was, it wasn't terrible, but it wasn't polished. Yeah. So we figured, you know, how hard could it be? And uh, I had just gotten on America Online. And one of the first emails I sent was to Richard Peeney wow. to ask how to start a publishing company. And uh, 
And instead of writing back and being like, you're, you're a horse's ass kid, yeah. he actually took it seriously and was extremely patient and gracious the whole way through. So very classy in both of my interactions with them. Wow. That's a, it, it, almost, yeah. I'm almost two ends of your life right there, too. <laughs> Isn't it? That's great. Uh, I assume I assume whatever he wrote to you, though, daunted you, and you were like, oh, and forget that. I'm not a... <laughs> Hopefully I, it was just a splash of cold water. I, I, I just wanted to draw the comics, buddy. I'm not trying That's to, it. you know, keep or anything but anyway uh don't forget folks if you want to read the entire elf quest saga up until the final quest for free go check out elfquest.com it's pretty clear from there you can read it right there on the browser and uh, it looks great that's how i did it so I recommend it to everyone if they want to see the very book that we read on this episode today but i think that's all we got from this week chris you got anything else for him um, they uh, they do over at elfquest.com. They do have a uh, a podcast. It's a fan podcast. Uh, they are more on the newer stuff though. Okay. So I, I am a bit behind on it, but uh, last I listened, it was it's basically going over the new stuff. So if you are interested in that, uh, definitely give them a listen. There seems to be no dearth of ElfQuest material out there in the world, folks. If you're yeah. interested, you can you can find it, and a lot of it seems to be readily available for uh, very little or for no money. So mm-hmm. uh, gotta love that. But if that's all we got, I think we're gonna keep it on the treadmill elvishly. High above the mucky muck. Castle made of clouds There sits Wonder Boy Sitting oh so proudly Not much to